0: The making of the film was a nightmare. We came back, we edited it, screened it at Paramount, and they liked it a lot, and, I, and it did very well for, you know, Charlie's uh, business. And then Paramount w- was releasing the films at that time in, on home video, and they asked for some sequels. And, you know, once you've been through an experience like that in Romania and you suffered through it and you got home, and then all the suffering and all the bad memories kind of fade away. And what's left are, oh, that night I spent with Vlad and Juana in their apartment, and we got drunk, you know, and laughed a lot. And, you know, the, all the good memories remain, you know. And so about a year later, I went back and, and did uh, subspecies two and three.
1: Hello and welcome to Subspecies Week on Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Our guest today is not only the creator, writer, and director of the Subspecies series, but also one of the genre's greatest gonzo filmmakers. He has an extensive history in the genre, beginning as the location sound recordist on Toby Hooper's seminal classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and an editor for longtime creative collaborator Charles Band on Empire and Full Moon classics like Tourist Trap, Ghoulies, Trancers, Stuart Gordon's Robot Jocks, and Crash and Burn. In 1986, he wrote and directed the wacky and entirely fun and cult classic, Terrorvision, And it was clear to Charles Band that he had found himself a real deal genre maestro. That filmmaker was Ted Nicolaou. And his next film after Terrorvision was the original subspecies. As Ted tells it, the original subspecies shoot in Romania was more or less a nightmare. Ted would once again prove his vision and endurance when not only did he survive the ordeal, he created one of Full Moon's biggest hits. The rest is subspecies history, and we're going to uncover all of it here. From the original film to the back-to-back shot sequel shot in 1993, when Full Moon was shining its brightest, to the fourth film for a transitioning and somewhat troubled Full Moon, to fan-favorite spin-off Vampire Journals, Ted is the creative vision behind it all. Spill Your Guts is proud to present a conversation with the man behind the bloodstone, Ted Nicola.
0: hi ted hey how's it going kevin good how are you i'm doing very well thanks
1: good thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate it it's great to have you on here it's a real treat for us
0: oh great man it's a pleasure yeah
1: so let's um i thought we'd just start right from the very beginning here uh, and just we're we're gonna just do a full-on deep dive here into your your genre credentials which are extensive but uh we figured we, I figured we'd start right from the beginning of, of your earlier days in tech. You were born and raised in Texas, is that right?
0: Yeah, I was born in New York, but I moved to Texas with my family when I was like six years old. So basically, I'm a Texan. Uh, lived in Dallas uh, as my childhood and then went to University of Texas in Austin uh, for college and kind of hated Dallas and fell in love with Austin and uh, stayed there for a long time after school.
1: What'd you take in school?
0: Uh, started out thinking I was going to be a doctor, so I started out in premed, and but I really loved writing, so then I switched over to English major, and then uh, a friend took me to see Juliet of the Spirits and uh, the Fellini film, and it kind of changed my life. Uh, I was kind of a musician and a writer, and uh, seeing that film made me understand kind of what, how you could tell stories, use music, and uh, write and and have an incredible artistic experience. So myself and my friend Daniel Pearl, who was uh, kind of my best friend through uh, college, uh, who ended up being the director of photography of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we both kind of had that same revelation at the same time, and both of us switched over to the film department.
1: Daniel Pearl's gone on to uh, be the cinematographer in quite a few different genre films, hasn't he?
0: Yeah, music videos. He's very big in music videos and commercials. Yeah, he's he's had a really long career.
1: You want, decided it after you saw the Fellini film. Which Fellini film was it?
0: It was Juliet of the Spirits. It was like a kind of an acid trip combined with going to see a movie at the film society at school. And um, Juliet of the Spirits just blew my mind. And then the next week, we went to see uh, Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal. And that That film also just, you know, showed me what cinema was. And I had loved making movies, and we had a 16-millimeter camera at home when I was growing up. Um, So I kind of understood the possibilities, but those two movies made me go, you know, I don't want to be a doctor. I just want to make movies. And uh, University of Texas had a great film department at the time uh, run by a guy named Rod Whitaker, who was the writer of... uh, Uh, the Iger Sanction and the Lou Sanction. He was wrote under the pseudonym uh, Trevanian. And uh, he was a great inspiration and they had great equipment and a little building off to the edge of campus with uh, editing facilities. And so we were just, uh, we were kind of on our own there and really had a great time.
1: Did you guys just take the gear and run off and shoot shorts and just get a chance to experiment with it?
0: Yeah, yeah. It started out, you know, with eight millimeter cameras, and then once you proved that you were going to stick with the department, there were sixteen millimeter eclairs and uh, Steenbeck editing tables, and you could get in there. We'd stay all night editing and shoot during the day, and um, we. Some of our films were financed through the local, like national uh, uh, educational television um, outlet there in Austin, so we really had a great, great experience. Did,
1: did you finish your film classes before you worked on Texas Chainsaw or when did Texas Chainsaw come up?
0: Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I guess, was 1972. And I guess we had just graduated, both Daniel and I just graduated. And uh, we were about, I was about to go into a uh, uh, graduate department in film at UT. And that summer we did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Basically, Daniel got hired as director of photography. I was like, uh, uh, I had been working as a boom operator for a guy named Courtney Gooden, who was kind of like the um, uh, tech genius of Austin in those days. And uh, But Courtney had gotten hired to do another film in San Antonio. And uh, so Daniel recommended me for the uh, sound recordist as Tech Chainsaw Massacre. So you didn't
1: know Toby Hooper prior to that? You guys didn't, he wasn't in the same film school or anything as you guys?
0: No, he, he was a little bit older. So whatever education he had had was like five or six years ahead of us.
1: Okay, gotcha. So, yeah, because it's, it's funny on on the internet, depending on where you look, it says that you were either the sound recordist or the location manager on Texas Chainsaw.
0: <laughs> oh, because it's a location. It's usually listed as a location sound recordist. So, uh, yeah.
1: Um, when you guys were making that film, you know, and I, and, and of course, uh, the story of the making of Texas Chainsaws, uh, quite well known, at least it will be to the listeners of this podcast, but, uh, um, did you guys have a, like, did you personally have a sense when you were making that movie that Toby was sort of onto something that he was making something that was going to be more than just, you know, the means he had to make it with?
0: You know, when we first started, uh, we were kind of like, snobby little film students who were kind of raised on art films and film history. And, uh, Toby seemed, uh, very indecisive. We had been taught that every second counts in a shooting day and you've got to come super prepared and Toby came not prepared. So the first couple of hours of every day was Toby trying to figure out with Kim Hankel, the co-writer and producer, uh, what they were going to shoot that day. Um, so in fact, we didn't really know uh, what what we were on to. You know, we knew that the some of the images that, that Toby was capturing were spectacularly horrifying. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, a year into post-production when he finally finished editing the film that we understood, saw the film, and understood kind of what a powerful horror film it was.
1: Do you think Toby sort of had that all in place Right from the beginning. And do you think some of that sort of fell into place while you guys were making the film?
0: Um, Toby had a pretty clear idea of, you know, script and actors and what he wanted the actors to do. And um so whatever indecisiveness there was was more about, you know, how to sh- how to capture it on camera. So I think Toby actually knew what he was doing and Toby had a real distinct kind of uh sensibility that was a uh, real Texas sensibility, and in those days, if you traveled outside of Austin, you could indeed run into some characters like that. So, so it captured a certain kind of hippie horror of uh, of kind of the the outside of town people around Texas.
1: Right. Yeah, it was funny. A friend of mine um, who who doesn't really do well with horror films. I managed about two years ago to pin her down. Just sort of go through a Texas chainsaw kind of marathon. Oh man! And uh, the f- yeah, she wasn't happy with me. But the funny <laughs> thing was, by the time we got to the one with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger she was like look how they go from like a guy who's scraping his scalp off and eating and stuff to Matthew McConaughey <laughs> I was like yeah it is quite a transition there <laughs> she's like it's yeah, much yeah. less scary of being eaten by Matthew McConaughey I might even sign up for that <laughs> Course that series is like you know seeing you know all sorts of iterations and you know none of them are really connected to each other and because I think Toby only did the first two, if I'm not
0: mistaken. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think the first one was so powerful because it was so raw and and made by, you know, not exactly film professionals, but was made with a passion, you know, because we were really trying to prove ourselves, too. Um, myself, I can't really say I was a big creative influence on the movie. I was just trying to stay out of the way of the camera and make sure that the sound was recorded well but uh daniel i think uh had a great influence over the look of that film and and then you know it was just so raw and terrifyingly real feeling
1: was it the kind of shoot because of the subject matter where it was like was it an intense kind of thing or was or was it you know were people having fun on set uh
0: you always have fun on set uh it was hot it was summertime in texas out you know with no shade um so it was a very brutal kind of a shoot but the uh but, you know the when you're making a film and you spew blood everywhere there's something funny about it too and um so yeah we kind of kept each other entertained through really.
1: it right so after that uh when was it that you first met charlie band
0: so uh, basically, I did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, stayed in Austin for another five or six ooh, five or six years, uh, thinking we were going to raise money to do our own independent horror films. Uh, but the, the money had kind of dried up for that after Chainsaw Massacre. So uh, a bunch of my friends had already left Austin and moved out to Los Angeles. I went to, uh, eventually they called me and said, you know, come out here. We, you have a job waiting for you. Uh, right. on a film called Roar, which was uh, uh, Tippi Hedren and Noel Marshall's kind of crazy lion and tiger. Yeah, opus. is that
1: where the cats were mauling everybody and yeah. everybody, get, all kinds of people got hurt and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it was yeah. the most
0: insane shoot ever. But I, I left Los an- left Austin, drove out to Los Angeles in my van, uh, like like the Beverly Hillbillies, and stayed with Courtney for a little while till I got an apartment. Worked on Roar for like nine months or so. Uh, until a flood just kind of wiped away the entire, uh, the entire uh, location uh, that they had built and the cutting rooms, uh, stayed on to kind of get dig the film out of the mud and clean it and, and clean all the editing machines and start editing again. And about that time, uh, Larry Carroll, who was uh, the co-writer of Tourist Trap with uh, David Schmoller, both those guys were kind of friends of mine from film school, um, they uh, had gotten a deal with Charlie Band's company to produce Tourist Trap. And so they hired me away from Roar to come edit Tourist Trap. And that's where I met Charles Band for the first time.
1: And that was, uh, so that was fairly early on, sort of the Empire era?
0: It was uh, pre Empire. It, it was Charles Band. It was Charles oh, Band production. Okay. It wasn't even Empire at that point. He had a little office on oh, okay. on the Boulevard. Uh, and a couple of cutting rooms and a little warehouse space in back and a, and a little space that he could shoot in. Uh, and he was producing, at that time, I think he had just finished uh, End of the World or something and was doing A, a Tourist Trap and a movie called The Daytime Ended. Uh, so I had a cutting room there.
1: Daytime End, It's like got a lot of stop motion and stuff in it? I feel like I just yeah. saw that. Is that the one?
0: Yeah, Dave, that's did
1: David one. Allen do yeah. that? That picture? Uh, David yeah, Allen yeah. did
0: the, <laughs> did funny, the yeah. stop motion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and okay. Yeah, so I did uh, tourist trap, and then after that, Charlie asked me to stay on and uh, kind of clean up the editing of the daytime ended because it was it was kind of a mess, and the director had left, and the editor had left. So I came in and and uh, tried to fix as well as I could. The daytime ended.
1: And you also worked on, uh, I guess at the time, it had become Nightwarn or something, but it became Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker.
0: Yeah. Uh, so after, after uh, the daytime ended, I kind of went off and, and you know, tried to work as an independent editor. Came across a guy named Michael Miller, who was a director from Chicago, who was directing a TV pilot for um, MGM. And I edited that pilot for him then he uh went on to become the director of a film called Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker um he got and so he brought me on as editor of that film he shot for one or two days uh the very opening sequence the car crash sequence of that film and the producers weren't happy for some reason it was taking too long and so they fired him and i stayed on as the editor and uh, cut that sequence and then Subsequently, they brought in, um, uh, and who ended up being the director of that film? Um, it was a, the guy who created uh, Bewitched. Um, okay,
1: Bewitched is a little outside my genre credit.
0: Okay, sorry <laughs> about that, man. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm like, yeah. I don't know who uh,
1: Bewitched, <laughs> which remake they're probably on 17 by now of that. Of Bewitched, no, it yeah. was
0: uh, Bewitched the TV series uh William Asher. They fired uh Michael Miller and I stayed on editing. They brought in a director named William Asher who was like a old Hollywood pro who ended up finishing the film uh and um so that that's was kind of the story of Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Um I stayed because I really wanted to cut the scene that Michael Miller had directed cuz it was so powerful and uh so I put everything into it that I could and and ended up staying to finish the film
1: it's actually a, a well uh a well-cut movie it has a, a it, it clips along nicely it's there's some great editing choices in it when i watched oh, yeah, watched it recently i i hadn't seen it before and uh it's kind of a new little movie it's sort of out there it's not uh i didn't really <laughs> it, know what to make of it
0: it's very kind of like a weird psychosexuals movie and then that, that's where I met uh, Bill Paxton. Bill, yeah, Bill Paxton had a part in very early in his career as kind of like the, the jock basketball player. Um, and uh, it, it was funny because he, was so gung ho that he would come to the cutting room and hang out with us and just to see what was going on because he was you know trying to absorb everything that he possibly could. So he ended up becoming a friend right. of ours. Um, from that, he was like would come to the cutting room and then one sunday morning i got up early and uh went out to get my paper and bill paxton was our paper boy too
1: (laughs) (laughs) did you ever see the film that he directed frailty
0: uh yeah it was really good yeah yeah
1: yeah it was great yeah yeah he was a very
0: talented guy yeah
1: yeah he sure was i I really i i always i wish after frailty that he'd gotten to do more genre films, because for you know his first one as a director, he just sort of killed it um, there's two other movies that you edited that, I, that are movies just very close to my heart that I adore, which are trancers and Zone Troopers
0: Ah, uh, yeah, 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 I love uh, those
1: both those movies i i when I was a kid, I used to watch those movies incessantly, and I remember going to school. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember going to school, and I was born in '82, so I go to school when I'm a, a youngster, and you know, the other kids are interested in He-Man or whatever. And um, my uh, my teacher says something to my I was, "Who's this Jack Death character that Kevin's obsessed with?"
2: <laughs> because it was like,
1: there, you know, my friends are like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm like Tim Tomerson. It was like a very, you know, I was, I guess, just that sort of kid. But, but both of those movies to me are now. They were in the Empire era, right? Zone troopers and trancers?
0: Uh yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. So uh Charlie um started Empire and uh basically it was a great place to work because there were like three three floors in Hollywood. You know, the ground floor was kind of reception and a screening room and and uh executive offices. Second floor was writers and producers, third floor was post-production and um Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo were kind of like the resident writers uh, there. They were great at kind of capturing like kind of a noir sensibility. And so basically that, that was when I came back to to start working for Charlie again was the, it was trancers. Um, and uh, Mac Allberg, the director of photography, you know, had a magic eye for for light and lighting. People. Yeah, also
1: did like Reanimator and uh, a few Stuart Gordon productions, products and stuff, right?
0: Yeah, he worked with Charlie for quite a long time, and he was really, really a great cinematographer. Um, and yeah, that's where I met Danny and Paul, and and um, I came back to work for Charlie and ended up staying for a long time there. So, you know what, I think. Maybe Trancers was I'm trying to remember where I edited Trancers. There was a there was like an interim period uh, before we moved into that place in Hollywood. But Trancers was was uh, the first one, and then Danny and Paul. Uh, at a certain point, Charlie decided he was going to make uh, a lot of movies, all you know back to back, and he needed yeah. uh, he needed uh, more directors to work with. Uh, and oh yeah, so that would take us back a little bit earlier to like uh to Rage War or or to uh
1: Okay
0: is that the name Dungeon of the Dungeon Master? Dungeon Master, yeah, it would take us yeah, back to the eighty four, yeah. Yeah, because what uh, what year was uh Trancers? It was
1: Trancers, I think, was just before, yeah. Cause basically like when I when I was sort of diving in and it went you pretty much finished up sort of I think it was Trancers or Zone Troopers, one of those, and then that's when you just sort of, there was less uh, editing and you started directing more pictures for
0: yeah, for, for yeah, Charlie. Yeah. Basically. Okay. So, so before we moved into the place on, uh, on uh, La Brea, there was a little office on Fairfax. And that's where Charlie had the uh, post-production offices that did uh, reanimator. And that's where I cut, uh, I believe, trancers.
1: Okay. Here we go. I found it, Ted. So y- You did, uh, as an editor, you did The Alchemist, then Dungeon Master, where you directed the desert segment, and then you edited Trancers, Ghoulies, Zone Troopers, Jocks, Meridian, Crash and Burn, and Trancers 2.
0: Okay, okay. All right. So basically, in this, uh, when Charlie decided he was going to start making more and more movies, I think that was right at the beginning of Empire, he... um, did this movie called Dungeon Master that was going to be a test for a number of uh, new directors. And basically he shot the wraparound story of Mastema and and Jeffrey Byron and then hired individual directors like Peter Minugian and uh, uh, David Allen got a shot at it, John Beekler, his uh, makeup effects artist all of these guys kind of wrote and directed their little segment within that of the film within the film. And when I finished editing it, my feeling was, you know, I, I want to direct too. And this is, I can, I can do better than some of these. So basically the movie (laughs) ended up being too short. And um, so Charlie said, okay, so we need one more segment. So you do it. And that's when I got to kind of show him what I could do as a director in that, that little um, uh, desert car chase sequence. Uh, it was two days of shooting out in the desert, uh, great location, uh, but the little cars kind of uh, kept failing. And right at the final big <laughs> moment where they're supposed to crash together and explode, one of them stopped running. So I had to kind of come up with some kind of editorial solution. For the final moments
1: a lot less uh, climactic than an explosion huh? it just stalls out <laughs> instead
0: of exploding yeah
2: P-p-p-p-p-p-p- yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, so it was uh so i managed to come up with a solution for it. charlie appreciated that i didn't you know tell him i had to have another day of shooting because for him budget's always kind of the the primary thing sure so uh so that kind of set me up to, for more directing or, or to be able to direct for him eventually. Uh, then he moved into the building on La Brea and uh, Danny and Paul wrote Trancers. Trancers turned out to be a very popular movie and it was actually a, a decent low-budget uh, science fiction film, uh, which led to Charlie, uh, the dollar was very strong against uh, Italian Lira. And uh, so Charlie wanted to begin shooting movies in Italy because he had grown up in Italy and in Italy, had friends yeah. in Italy and, uh, and uh, made a deal to, to purchase the, the old Dino De Laurentiis uh, film studio, which was outside of Rome. So uh, Danny and Paul were kind of the test uh, director and producer for the first film in Italy, which was Zone Troopers. Uh, And I like Danny and Paul and Charlie asked me to edit the film. And so I cut that film for them. Uh, And the thing with uh, when you were editing for Charlie, his father, Albert Band, was like the kind of uh, editorial consultant for everything. And so you sort of had to work with him to trim down the film. And some directors didn't like to be told what they had to cut from their film. But if you listen to Albert, he really made a lot of sense and, and had a lot of experience and could teach you how uh, how flexible your movie was when it was still in the editing room. So I got along with Albert very well. We cut the trancers, uh, and then the studio took off. And so Charlie decided he was going to do three movies back-to-back and release them theatrically. One was Eliminator's. Uh, that peter manugian directed one was uh troll that uh, that uh, john Beekler was to direct and the next one was Terrorvision that was my first kind of feature to direct
1: and do you think in the end you know because the concept with dungeon master of using you know multiple different directors and piecing together these different segments like do you think that that uh worked out in the end or do you think the film's sort of a little too disparate and
0: Oh, the film itself was sort of goofy and 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 silly. I thought, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you sort of put everything you can into the editorial process and make everything work as well as it can. It, does the movie work? Is it good? Uh, I don't think it's all that good, but it, I guess, it served its purpose for Charlie. I mean, in those days, uh, he basically pre-sold the films, you know, through film markets and sold the international rights. So uh, he was pretty much in profit probably before he even made the film. And those those days unfortunately are long gone, but the but that was his process. Yeah. So for him it didn't matter if the film was really good or not necessarily. It just mattered that it got finished and he could deliver it. That he had the so, product, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I can't yeah, really right. I can't really uh speak for the high quality of of very many of those films really, you know. I mean, they're There are some I I just watched Zone Troopers the other day and it's, it almost looks like a real movie. You know, the, the creature suffers a little bit Um, and trancers almost looks like a real movie. There's some goofy makeup. and
1: Both those ones benefit too from having really great casts. There's a really fun group of actors in Zone Troopers and in trancers.
0: Yeah, exactly. Of course. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But Tim of course carries those films.
0: Yeah, yeah, those were the days when when Charlie, you know, af- had the money to to pay for decent cast.
1: Yeah, right. Um so after that you moved into the film *TerrorVision*, in and, and, and that was in 86. Uh that I'm going to read the IMDb synopsis for television it says a a family's (laughs) a family's new satellite television system starts receiving signals from another planet and soon it becomes the passageway to an alien world what's funny to me about that is that sounds so much more serious than what the film is (laughs)
0: boy it really does yeah yeah
1: that Uh, that sounds like a straight ahead or picture and then the movie is what it is
0: it's funny when Charlie um, proposed that film to me, the way he would kind of develop the movies that he was going to do was he would have a uh, poster artist do- design the poster first and- based on his kind of germ of an idea. And uh, so yeah, he like, would... I've
1: heard Charlie talk about that. And I'm curious about that, Ted. So this, this thing of like the posters first. So Charlie would just go to an artist, presumably like, was it one artist or was there a couple different people doing? Uh, it I think he had a
0: favorite artist. I don't know his name, but, but yeah, he was his favorite artist and he was good. You know, he was and a good, lot of
1: and... Yeah. A lot of them are great. Yeah. Yeah. But it's always, it always seemed to be such a weird thing that, that Charlie would just be like, was it just like Charlie would say this guy, okay, it's, you know, it's a little creature and this time uh, it uses this weapon instead of that weapon and go draw that. And then the guy would make that. And then that was the beginnings of, okay, now how do we make that into a film?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he showed me several different things, probably uh the maybe the the poster for Hidden World, which was a kid kind of like traveling through a mirror into a, so it was a kid with some magical looking landscape, uh, beyond him, uh, and Terravision, which was basically a very generic kind of old school TV console TV set and a monster kind of jumping out of the, of the TV set, not at all like the monster that ended up being in the film. Uh and so he said, what, what would you, would, you know, which of these posters show you three or four posters, uh, what kind of inspires you? And, uh, I said, "Well, Terror Vision looks interesting. Uh, could I make it kind of a comedy horror film?" And he wasn't really known for making comedies at that point. Uh, but right. to to his credit, he he agreed. And because I knew, a I knew the limitations of what you could accomplish, you know, in a in an Empire picture. I knew the the kind of limitations of John Beekler's uh, work as a puppet. Puppeteer, um, so I, I I felt like a comedy. I could probably get away with a comedy a lot better than a, yeah. a straight-ahead horror right. film monster coming out of a TV set. So uh, that began the process of basically casting. You know, first I I wrote the script based on the idea of monster comes through a satellite dish out of a TV, terrorizes a family. Right. Um, started working with John Beekler mm-hmm. and his team of artists to kind of design the creature and um john didn't quite agree with my idea of like making him like this weird asymmetrical uh multiple tentacled weird uh creature that was a little bit stupid looking and a little bit endearing <laughs> and big teeth uh i wanted something completely crazy and and um silly and uh, eventually he kind of came around to it and uh, maybe Cleve Hall. I was going to say,
1: his... the, the monster you ended up with certainly fits, you know, that, that Ed description of, of sort of being a uh, combination kind of, sort of goopy, fun, silly, sort of stupid monster. I mean, he definitely, he, he, he lives up to that.
0: He lives up to it and more. Uh, I think what happened was when John <laughs> yeah. finally kind of, either he got so busy working on Troll and and just turned over the film to his, uh, to his artists and sculptors, And those guys got it, you know. Um, I think that maybe is what happened. in Cleve Hall, I think, was kind of the chief uh, puppeteer on it. Um, They came up with something that was so outlandish and so great and so, like, hard to move around. Uh, But they sent it over to Italy. And um, uh, simultaneous to, to the design of the creature, the the art director uh production designer Giovanni Natolucci the Italian who had done uh, Zone Troopers and uh, also uh Troll and um, ended up doing a lot of films for Charlie uh he came to the to Los Angeles to discuss uh television and we I took him we looked at a million kind of catalogs of locations looking for this is what houses in the valley look like this is kind of what porn houses look like here's a uh, you know, I read uh, on
1: IMDb that you guys actually went to like some like practical like swingers pads to scope about. Uh, Is I, that yeah, true?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we basically looked, <laughs> we we went through location uh, catalogs. You know, pictures. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, and and he got inspired, went back to Italy and started doing his designs, uh, and he would send kind of design updates. But when I first got to Italy and walked onto the sets for the first time, it blew my mind how he had taken this idea of swinger pads and expanded it into this incredible pleasure palace of a house with erotic art on the walls and the, the oh, jacuzzi. it's a crazy location like uh-huh. that sets are wild wild yeah. I was,
1: it's like something out of austin powers or something yeah. like it's yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so <laughs> he he kind of like uh he outdid himself and and the the movie itself the script was was what it was and it, it's pretty much what the film ended up being but every step along the way the the collaborators that i had to work with kind of plussed it a little bit more and, and Giovanni took whatever was in my mind and just exploded it into real space and color like incredible color um the casting uh we were so lucky to land on yeah Garrett great Graham. cast yeah. yeah and Mary Warren cast. off when she heard that Garrett Graham was going to be in it she was really happy and she she campaigned to play the mother. I wanted her for the part of, of, uh, the Medusa character, the Medusa. And she yeah, said, I oh, can totally
1: see that. I can totally yeah. see that.
0: She said, that's what everybody would, would want me to <laughs> yeah. play is Medusa. But what yeah. I really want to play is, is, uh, Mrs. Putterman, which is funny because she is, and you can tell it from the film, she is not a maternal uh, person at all? No, you know? no. <laughs> um, she doesn't and, really
1: play those parts typically in in films either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, no. and that's what
0: she liked about it too. So that was really great. um And you know, then Diane Franklin and John Grise. You know, just every character along the way kind of brought something to the audition that uh, that we were able to kind of incorporate into the film. And so when the when the ensemble and it was
1: of, it was Chad Allen's first movie too, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: Chad Allen was. Fantastic yeah. for like a, the little yeah, straight person of the movie, you know, and uh, and uh, Gramps was was incredible, um, and Bert Remsen yeah. as Gramps. Uh, the when they all walked on the set, Chad Allen's parents said, uh, "If you wouldn't mind, don't shoot Chad against the erotic art on the walls," you know. Uh, because they were Christians, uh, but that was impossible. There's no way. Um,
1: <laughs> You're like, we can't get around that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they were they were ended up being good sports about it. And you know, when the when the performances, you know, I think Garrett Graham and Mary Warnoff kind of set the tone of the performances. And and um,
1: and Garrett Graham had already done Phantom of the Paradise by that point, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Years before. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah and and he was i mean everybody was so great and so worked so well together as an ensemble and the and john Grise was a little bit worried about the kind of level of performances in the film but he managed to come up to it too and um diane franklin is so perky and also so kind of mean as a sister you know it, it, so so uh, the point is that everybody kind of brought something to the table that ended up making that film more than it was.
1: Well, there's an actor in there named Sonny Carl Davis, who's gone on to be in like a, a ton of Charlie's films. And I'm I'm curious, like how that came to be that, that Sonny Carl Davis, I uh, think from what I found, this was his first son of Charlie film, but then he goes on to be in, to this day, he's still in Charlie's movies. So he yeah. became like the sort of mascot. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, Sonny Davis was a friend of mine from Austin. Uh, I had a band called Ramon and Ramon and the Four Daddios. We were kind of like a hippie, crazy party band, psychedelic uh, band. And uh, we inspired a band that he ended up uh, becoming a member of called the Uranium Savages. So Sonny was an actor and a musician. We were friends. Uh, He ended up coming out to Los Angeles. He acted in like Thelma and Louise, and uh, uh, you know a lot of legitimate Hollywood films. And I had this part for uh, the the satellite repair guy Norton. And I just said to Charlie, "Hey, I've got this friend, Sonny. Uh, I'd love to have him come over to Italy and do this part." And Charlie didn't even make him audition or anything. Just said, "Okay, sure." And so Sonny came over and, you know, joined our like endless party at the beach in Italy as we were making that film. Um, And, and for some reason, Charlie really liked him, liked his comic sensibility. And, and I think even from the earliest days of Charlie's movies, when Albert was also directing films, that, that, um, there was always a part for kind of the old guy, you know, and Sonny always sort of had the quality of being the old guy, you know, uh, even when he was younger. Yeah. Um, and so for some reason, Charlie kept bringing him back through the like transfers too and uh, beyond that and, and seed people. I mean, he's had a lot of parts and a couple of parts in, in, uh, <coughs> in more of my films. Uh, and even to this day, sort of like the, the face of the Evil Bong and I was in series. like the,
1: the, the, yeah, the Evil Bong films. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, and how did uh, Jennifer Richards, who played the Medusa role, was that character sort of meant to be sort of a homage to sort of, you know, the Elvira-type hostess character? Like, was there a particular sort of monster TV host that, that you had been influenced by or that, that you grew up watching?
0: Uh, the, the monster TV host, Saturday Night uh, TV host, uh, when I was growing up, was a guy. Kind of an egory kind of guy uh, but uh, but Elvira was kind of big at the time uh, when we made television. so yeah, I wanted an Elvira type, but I wanted her to be even more kind of overtly sexy, and the idea of Medusa who can make you rock hard uh was kind of like struck me as being kind of funny, so uh, we made her Medusa and Jennifer Richards came in, and besides being a really great comedian, she just had the the bosom that kind of made that character you know really work you know
1: yeah yeah (laughs) yeah it's funny because the movie itself is like such a it's it like this trippy you know it's a horror comedy with an emphasis on the comedy part for sure um but there's there's one part i remember Uh, And I revisited the movie for our our chat today. And, And there's this part where I love the idea that the monster, when it sort of consumes people, it can then sort of manifest them. And there's that great sequence where they're talking to the grandfather, but it's actually the creature is sort of manifesting the grandfather and it's this one sequence in the film that is otherwise this crazy funny where i'm like that's actually a little bit creepy the way he does that and the <laughs> grandfather's face pops out it's all goopy i remember like as a kid thinking that part was actually scary <laughs>
0: that's funny man you know i wanted the movie uh you know uh, maybe i uh, miscalculated a little bit i wanted the movie to be like the kind of film that when i was a kid uh, invaders from mars was like the paranoia of the original invaders from Mars, the kind of uh, expressionistic um, production design of it. The right. idea that seen from a kid's point of view, all this terrible things going on, uh, nobody believes him, And uh, the idea that you could, you know, maybe I saw invaders from Mars in bits and pieces and missed part of it. But the, but the movie itself really haunted me and the, the film um, uh, Earth versus Flying Saucers uh, was the same sort of thing for me growing up. Was uh, I saw the trailer at the drive in theater, but the movie never came to Dallas when I was a kid, you know? So it was years before I finally got to see that film. But those films kind of like stuck in my brain, and I wanted television to be that basically the same thing. It would stick in your brain as a kid. Uh, all the eroticism and crazy swinger stuff maybe it was the miscalculation on my part and more <laughs> of a the Stoner comedy uh part that I was trying to make too but i think it did kind of stick in the brains of a lot of kids who saw it on television it didn't look oh, like yeah. anything else that they'd ever seen you know
1: well and that that opening theme song is a real banger i mean i never forgot that that opening song
2: yeah <laughs> like... yeah. yeah the fibonaccis <laughs>
0: were great man they i sort of uh that, that film is all tied into kind of a certain era of Los Angeles. In that era, there was a nightclub called Club Lingerie on Sunset. There was a beautiful, big music hall. Uh, a lot of great bands played there. And the Fibonacci's were regulars there. And Mary Warnoff was a regular there. So I'd see Mary there before I met her and uh, saw the Fibonacci's. And w- when we finished Television, I wanted uh, Frank Zappa to do the score. And we got Frank Zappa to come in and uh, watch the film, and uh, I think the schedule how how quickly we needed the 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 score kind of chased him away um, but i it stuck in my head the the sound of the Fibonaccis was so unique and new wave sounding so so we reached out to the Fibonaccis and got them to do the you know the 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 theme song and a couple of the incidental pieces that are in the film
1: it's funny because the movie has this sort of quality to it of sort of satirizing kind of 80s excess and you know just the the sort of uh you know and the ridiculous fashion sense that the parents have and they're you know this crazy sort of lifestyle that they're participating in and i remember like you know, when I first saw that movie, thinking like, what the hell are they doing? What is what is what are, is this clothes in this place? And so it's funny because you go back and you watch it now and it's this little time capsule of it. Like, you know, I think I think sort of um, it's a little larger than life, but there was sort of people that were into that scene, you know, at that time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it really is a time capsule of that period. and And, you know, when it first came out, it was so. Universally hated by the critics, uh, that <laughs> it sort of hurt me really badly for a while. You know, just the thought that that nobody got the movie. I, I knew that there was a certain crowd of kind of stoners and college students and stuff like that who who did get right. it, uh, but n- nobody saw it in the theaters. And it was really not till years later that the you know the people started turning their friends on to it, and and the the it became sort of a, a cult movie. Yeah, 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 it really did. And and that, so it's been really satisfying that it still even now sort of, you know, inspires people to turn their friends on to it.
1: Yeah, I remember John Carpenter talking about um, how so many of his pictures, like, you know, at the time that they came out, people said, this is crap, you know, this is, you know, and nobody sort of got it. And then he said, I don't know why, for whatever reason, it seems to be that years later, they end up going, that's a masterpiece. And he's thinking, where the hell were you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when it opened?
0: Yeah. I like, <laughs> really needed you. Yeah, needed that support. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. So, so there's this pretty big gap there before you ended up doing what is sort of your, your claim to fame, your, 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 your babies, the subspecies series, which uh, the first one being in 91 yeah um and I'm curious with subspecies like so uh for anyone who's of the listeners who haven't seen subspecies, you have to stop what you're doing now and go watch it and then finish listening to this podcast <laughs> but subspecies basically the premise is that three students get caught in a struggle between a good vampire and his evil brother in in transylvania and, and but you had the the rare pleasure to actually get to go shoot this vampire movie in Romania.
0: Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh after Terror vision I got a I got kind of um hung up in development hell at Empire for a while doing, you know, trying to do some comedies and they were reaching out into different genres um and none of them got off the ground uh until there was a small period where they were doing uh they were doing like crazy title movies and one of them was space sluts in the slam right uh and so i wrote a script that was <laughs> i wrote a script <laughs> i wrote this script. oh man
1: ma- imagine calling a movie that now
0: <laughs> oh wow oh, man no and, and even then i was like okay we have to change this title but i want to do this it's film. it's
1: degrading so, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I,
0: I wrote a really funny kind of sex farce in space And it was really funny. we were going to shoot it on the leftover sets from, um, Arena, the Peter Manoogian film, um, went over to cast it and went over to Italy to start pre-production just at the time that empire kind of collapsed and fell apart. Right. Out of the ruins of empire, uh, Charlie came back with uh, full moon. I edited a couple of movies for him at full moon, uh, like, um, Like uh, Meridian, um, and of and at a certain point, he pulled out the old poster again. And here's a poster for a movie called Subspecies, and it's uh, I think it's this one the little minions carrying the the woman across yeah the, okay yeah. but they
1: don't look like the, the the minions that ended up being in the film they they look very different than the minions that we actually end up seeing in the movie
0: yeah yeah but it was it's the same sort of story the monster of television yeah. didn't look like but it's this is what yeah, I, this is right. what charlie's gonna sell is this idea uh, yes he, right he had been approached by a guy named jan ionescu who was like a Romanian expat who was living in Los Angeles. And after the revolution in 1989, Christmas of 89, where they deposed Ceausescu and democracy was blooming in Romania, uh, Jan Ionescu wanted to go back and start doing business in Romania. So he put together a deal and proposed it to Charlie, whereby the, the Romanian film studio, Bufta, would pay for all the Romanian costs. And Charlie would pay for the cast, director, post-production, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and uh, too good a deal for Charlie to pass up. And right. I, I think he first offered it to Stuart Gordon, in fact. Uh, but Stuart didn't want to do it. Um, and so then he offered it to me and said, you want to go uh, do this movie in, in Romania? So he sent me there for a week to, uh, to kind of scout locations and meet the people and see if it was even possible to do. I spent a week in Romania, driving up and down the country, up into Transylvania, looking at castles and monasteries, meeting Vlad Paunescu, who was going to be the director of photography, who didn't speak English, and his girlfriend, who is now his wife, Juana, who was the, going to be the costume designer, who did speak enough English that we could all kind of communicate. Um, got to know them very well and loved them. Uh, came back to Charlie and said, "Yeah, okay, we can do this, you know." So so then um it took another few months or so and we basically uh cast the film. And when I went to when I went to start pre-production in Bucharest, uh we still did not have a Radu. Um we had the girls and I ended up casting one of the one of the female leads out of Bucharest. Um But Charlie uh, continued casting, met a guy named Michael Watson, who was on uh, General Hospital at the time, who ended up playing Stefan, the good brother. Michael suggested uh, a friend of his from General Hospital to play Radu, uh, and that was Anas Jove. And uh, so they read Anas Jove for the part and loved him and said, you're going to love this guy. He's great, great, great. And so really we got honest because of Michael Watson. Um, I was in pre-production and um, finally uh, the cast came over in pre-production. You're always like super lonely and, you know, struggling to kind of get the movie (laughs) off the ground. But once the cast starts arriving, you feel like, okay, it's real now and and you can start rehearsing and, and you feel like you've got your team there ready to help you. Um, the first subspecies was basically shot, you know, like nine months after the revolution. Uh, Romania was still like a very barren country. You couldn't find food in the grocery stores, or if you did, it was like big bottles of peas. Um, you couldn't get candy <laughs> yeah. bars except in the dollar shops. Uh, it was, you know, it was there was so little going on uh, that it could drive you completely insane. Um, and so the whole production of that movie was basically fighting against uh, the, getting the crew to kind of stop going on strike because they weren't getting paid enough. Uh, Vlad Pâunescu really kind of helped kind of keep it all together and kind of helped me kind of get through it. Um, Jan Ionescu, the producer who originally pitched the idea to Charlie, kind of ended up locking himself in his hotel room and not coming out. (laughs) Um, The production meetings would consist of glasses of tumblers of vodka until people were just like slobbering, screaming, and yelling, and Vlad would look at me, and I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm never going to get out of this country. And Vlad would look at me and just go, don't worry, Ted, be happy. You know, like, uh, because don't worry, be happy was kind of the big song at the time.
1: Yeah, right.
0: uh, and, but wine was like a dollar a bottle and, and pretty good. And honest and Michael were big drinkers. And so it was a, always a hassle. Michael was a big pain in the ass to work with because he was not, he just defied authority at every chance he got and was very kind of bipolar. And the actresses, uh, pissed off, um, the guy who played kind of the caretaker of the, of the monastery carl, yeah yeah carl uh, would step on his toes and his big shoes and so it was every night was a drunken madness dinner at the hotel of <laughs> like glasses of wine being knocked off the table chicken raw chicken bad french fries it was such a nightmare making the film and and the You know, after the first week of shooting, Charlie shut us down because he didn't like the way the film was looking. So they wanted to replace Vlad as director of photography with Adolfo Bartoli, who was kind of the next generation of Mac Alberg, Charlie's favorite cinematographer. Uh, Adolfo came to Romania and looked at me and and said, "You know, I don't want to come here and do this movie." Uh, (laughs) And I said, "Good, because I don't want to lose Vlad. Because if we don't have Vlad, we're not going to finish this movie at all. Because he's the only one that can." Control the crew. Um, Bridge the, that gap. Yeah. 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 And so, so basically, it was a nightmare production uh, from start to finish. It went much longer than it was supposed to. I, I ended up keeping a journal, um, day by day journal of the making of the film, just to keep myself sane and kind of turn it into some kind of comedy for myself at night. Um, it, but I kept holding on, thinking, you know, by God, I'm not going to let this movie defeat me. Uh, even as yeah. m- much of a hassle as it is, uh, and so we finally—you
1: were determined.
0: <laughs> yeah, we finished shooting like you know a few days before Christmas, uh, amidst like big s- marches in the street and uh, gunfire and stuff, kind of like leading up to the celebration of the of the anniversary of the revolution, uh, and got out of there on a night where there was bullets flying and stuff and and well got back and started editing it and you know i i'm not uh, I, i'm not under any illusion that any of the films i've done are masterpieces they're they're good <laughs> examples of what you can do for very little money and and some of them are are effective you know and and this film you know largely because the locations are so amazing the you know the the kind of local color that we were able to capture the and the performance of Anna Hove, you know.
1: The production values are just crazy. I mean, it's like it's the movie's so beautiful because of those locations. And then you had the benefit of being able to utilize things like, you know, that sort of cemetery uh, parade at the end. And then there's that uh-huh. sort of funeral procession. You, you know, you have had all these great production values that I would say, you know, prior to, to subspecies, like we hadn't seen much of that in – in the full moon movies either before or after. I mean, you know, you, that and, and I'm, I'm guessing part of that had to do with with being, you know, there's certain advantages that, that you found in Romania, uh, you know, despite the, the language barriers and all the other issues.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, that was what the, what kind of made me want to do the film to begin with was, A, I liked Vlad as a cinematographer. B, the locations were just, you know, oh yeah, you can shoot here, we can shoot here, we can go in this church. Uh, and, and the, the beauties of Romania as kind of crumbled down as a lot of it was the kind of historic beauties are, are spectacular. And once you get out into the, into Transylvania and and the Orthodox churches with, with all the gold leaf, um, iconography and everything. And, um, you know, it was like too, too wonderful an opportunity to pass up. So that, that was kind of why I agreed to do the film in the first place. Um we finished uh editing the film and like i said uh Honest hove's performance is just so yeah. so beautiful as as radu um while well, you there, were
1: making the movie did you have it, did you have a sense that Honest was creating something special with that character
0: like, yeah yeah basically were... uh, yeah yeah it was it was obvious to me that that he was a uh, a really special actor um michael watson also was good but was such a hassle to work ass. with yeah. <laughs> yeah um and uh but honest was really something special um uh, near the end of the production uh while we were still shooting we um we were up in the mountains for a while and then we came back to Bucharest and we were all like oh boy back to the city they put us in a hotel that was like a hotel that had like age treatments anti-aging treatments so you'd be in the hotel and uh, go down to the restaurant and people were walking around with trays with hypodermic needles on it it was like what the <laughs> fuck man um and the waiters <laughs> hated us and so it was like a hassle in town and then we switched to another hotel and then um uh uh, uh 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 Laura Tate who was playing kind of the love interest of Michael Watson uh somebody came into her room in the middle of the night and so she freaked out and ended up leaving when we still had a week of shooting left with her.
1: Oh, jeez!
0: So we had to kind of find a young Romanian woman to kind of cut her hair like, uh, like Laura's and uh, kind of cheat a bunch of scenes. And if you, oh, look at, if you look at the movie, you know, there's like scenes where, where they're going to talk with the old witch about, uh, about uh, the vampire castle and, and yeah. Laura t- puts a mask on her face. Uh, that was the kind of double girl and there's like some car scenes where we had to use the double right so so the making of the film was a nightmare we came back we edited <laughs> it screened it at paramount and they liked it a lot and i and it did very well for you know charlie's uh, business and then paramount w- was releasing the films at that time in on home video uh and they asked for some sequels and you know once you've been through an experience like that in Romania, and and you suffered through it, and you got home, and then all the suffering and all the bad memories kind of fade away, and what's left are oh that night I spent with Vlad and Wanda yeah. in their apartment, and we got drunk, you know, and, and laughed a lot, and you know the all the good memories remain, you know, and so so about a year later I went back and and did uh, subspecies two and three. And and at that time we still had the possibility to shoot in churches, to to shoot in the castles, and so the th- those two films were shot kind of as one long movie that ended up being cut into two pieces. Uh, you know, I think maybe we is an improvement in some ways over subspecies one in the in the Radu makeup, in the shadow flying kind of. Oh sequences. yeah, I think.
1: I think Bloodstone is probably f- like Full Moon's sort of sleekest looking film. It's, it's, it has such a, um, it, it, like the pace, the, it's atmospheric and, and honest and, uh, Denise Duff really stepped into the role. It just, a lot of things seem to really come together on Bloodstone to me to make it, you know, one of the real standout Full Moon films, uh, yeah, you know, in, in the entire run.
0: Yeah. So, so we did those two films and, and, um, Paramount liked those again, and 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 that by that time I kind of knew the locations of Romania. Vlad and were like really good friends of mine, um, and so that you know that was the kind of the subspecies saga. And honest, I kind of said honest, we're going to go do two more movies. Let's make a deal: no drinking on the set or during <laughs> a shooting day, and uh, when they're taking off your makeup at night. I'll come in and we'll have a glass, a bottle of wine together, you know. And, yeah, and he yeah. he lived up to that, and he was a became a really, really dear friend. And um, you know, because on subspecies one man, when we were doing those sword fights near the end of the film, yeah, uh, uh, uh honest and Michael Watson were drunk, and oh and I,
1: God, not the time you want to be big, drunk during a sword
0: fight. Yeah. yeah. The, and the Romanian stuntman went, no, 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 Ted, Mr. Ted, it's okay. It's okay. Good to be a little drunk when you do a sword fight. And I was like, no fucking way. So I, I had to cancel the sword fight a couple of days in a row because of drunkenness, you know? So it was really a problem. The drinking was a problem on the first one that that we didn't have to suffer anymore. You're
1: like, we're going to nip this in the bud for, for two and three.
0: Yeah, for two and three for sure, Yeah.
1: I'm curious for, for honest, like for the Radu character, like, was that, like how much of that came from the script? How much of that came from just little uh, inventions of honest that little, you know, cause the character has all these wonderful little quirks and isms that, you know, help really make him stand out from just another, you know, vampire creature, you know, and he's got a bit of a more of a Nosferatu sort of design than, than sort of some of the other vampire characters we've seen. Um, did did you and Anas spend you know any real amount of time sort of developing how Radu would be, or did it just sort of happen during the shoot?
0: We uh we basically I wanted the the kind of Nosferatu style vampire because to me vampires need to be kind of look like they came from the grave. Anas um, came on look so so the the kind of prosthetics were sculpted with that in mind. Honest came to the set the first day. And we were like, okay, so now how does he talk and how does he walk? Let's figure it out. And so we kind of just went off by ourselves up on the hillside and kind of came up with that shambling sort of walk. And I said, I, I think his lungs aren't really very wet anymore. So maybe he speaks with more of a raspy whisper. So he kind of played with that a little bit. And we got those two Yeah. Things. It sounds like
1: he's breathing dust when he talks. It's like, it's yeah. so dry.
0: Like. <laughs> yeah. That's what I wanted. I I didn't want a full voice. I just wanted that kind of, and, and so we, we got those two things. How does he talk and how does he walk? And, uh, wanna made the costume so spectacularly perfect for him. Um, and the, the makeup was great. Um, so basically how did he walk? How did he talk? And then the little internal beats in, in his performance, are are a lot of those are honest because he's such a great actor, you know um one of the best things he did was on Subspecies three when um when he uh after he kills mummy and he kind of collapses in the chair and he goes uh, I killed my father, my brother, my mother yeah. for you uh you know it, in my mind, it was going to be another kind of ranting raving radu moment. And honest said, "What if we just say now he's like, he's like just kind of empty, and it's not a like ranting and raving Radu. Yeah. It is Radu like is sunken into himself. And so that was a honest. That was honest completely, you know. And and so he he brought so much to that character, uh, you know, especially between number one and number two and three. Um, yeah. When he really, you know, I think the the script." gave him more to do in, in two and three. Um, but yeah, he's a brilliant actor.
1: Well, there's such a, I think, temptation when you're playing for an actor, you know, a monster character like that to, to sort of ham it up and, you know, just... But, but you know, Honest has these scenes of real pathos with that character where, where you really almost where you have sympathy for him because he's his story is sort of a tragic story even though he's a horrible creature he's there's tragedy there too and and honest really found those scenes too in some of these lovely quiet moments in, in the films particularly in the second and third one
0: yeah yeah and, and and the his kind of love sickness for for michelle you know he, he really played all that great you know and, and I, when i look back on my movies now I'm, I'm sort of like well i don't do horror movies exactly because my my sympathy is not with the victims, necessarily, it's sort right. of like I empathize with the monsters, and so they're really the stories of monsters yeah.
1: it's more it's funny because it's a it's a vampire movie, but it's more sort of a Frankenstein's monster type character in that He's sort of been made into this thing, and he didn't ask to be, and now he just has to survive as this thing that he is. And that's really more sort of a Frankenstein uh, tale than, than, a, than a, you know, a Dracula one.
0: Well, I think it's also the weight of immortality on, on your soul and right. on, your, on your being. You know? And that, to me, was kind of what, what I kind of came up, uh, ended up thinking, you know, that, that kind of informed subspecies two and three. And also informed uh, vampire journals, kind of that weight of immortality and how you live through that endless night.
1: And one thing I want to clarify is: is the title subspecies? Does that refer to the vampires know. or those little finger creatures?
0: <laughs> I think the title. I've always been like. <laughs> The you know what it's one of' I was those like things. is it
1: about the monsters or is it the little fingers like
0: the little the yeah. little finger minions are the subspecies it's okay, it's the kind of thing that okay, Charlie sold the movie, he sold it as subspecies, he sold those little minions, and I was like, I hate puppets. I don't want to do the you know, can we not have these puppets in it? And he was like, <laughs> dude, I sold the movie based on those things, so.
2: Well and Charlie is, is obsessed is, you know?
1: with little creatures and yeah. puppets yeah loves, yeah, yeah I mean it's like yeah. his
0: thing yeah
1: Yeah totally um and it's funny cuz remember seeing footage of like the original how the little creatures were going to be done it was like guys in suits with 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 oversized sets and and they were zipping around and I, it, but I think you know in the end the the, the David Allen stop motion creatures worked quite a bit better than the yeah, guys yeah. in
0: suits The guys in suits the problem was Hey, okay. The, 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 the super scale sets were pretty amazing and God knows how much Romanian money went into those, but it was quite a bit, I'm sure. Um, and, but the, the stuntmen, once they put on those suits, Romanian stuntmen are just kind of like probably half drunk and, and like completely (laughs) excitable. So there was no way to kind of, get the right performance out of them and the soundstage itself was so grimy that five minutes into any action the flesh-colored uh suits that they were wearing were just black with grime Filthy. and it was like oh no there's yeah. no way to do this you know and Charlie saw it <laughs> and it just was like no we have to do this with Dave Allen
1: well, and Dave Allen, just—he did such great work for Full Moon, and and yet again in this subs, particularly in two and three, he really the, the little creatures move really well and much more feel much more integrated in the second and third
0: films. Yeah, exactly. The first one, they didn't have shadows, and it was just kind of like a very quick put together thing. But two and three, they really did a better, much better job.
1: They're kind of funny, though, because they feel sort of random at times, right? They're not in it much. And it's there's like a bunch of times in the movie where I'm watching, I'm going, if Radu has this power to break up his fingers and make these little creatures, uh, why doesn't he use that more? My guess is probably just because it's expensive to do (laughs) the stop motion stuff. It's
0: expensive and I hate those fucking things. I'm telling you, if I could have (laughs) not had them in the film and just done a straight ahead vampire movie, I would have been much happier, you know? Yeah,
1: right. OK. <laughs> and then so it, Denise Duff was brought in to replace the actress who initially had played Michelle. Um, what happened there that you that you had to recast?
0: Uh, uh, Laura Tate had an unfortunate incident at the end of the making of Subspecies One, which was well, somebody kind of appeared in her room, which caused a gigantic scandal in the hotel and honest throwing telephones at the desk clerks and me being roused out of my sleep to come down and take care of my colleagues uh laura getting on an airplane and leaving uh when it came time to do subspecies two and she had she was like no fucking way (laughs) that that plus she had two young children at the time and the first one we were gone so much longer than we initially planned to be gone uh and and when you're that far away in a country like Romania and you've got kids I had a young co- young son at home too uh you miss them terribly and you just think you're going to yeah. die on the road or something and so so right. uh, and and so her kids were a little bit older and subspecies too and and she just didn't want to leave home you know so I understood that that was like right. not, couldn't argue with that so luckily but did he uh, did he- She's great. She's really Go ahead, good. Sir, she, em- she embraced that. Denise Duff embraced that part so beautifully. I had seen Denise and just, uh, you know, passed her in the hallway at uh, at Full Moon in the offices. And uh, she must have been auditioning for some other role there and was like, wow, she's an interesting looking person. And so then we brought her in for subspecies two and three and she was great. And she loved to travel and she was a really good kind of a uh, partner to have on the set.
1: Yeah, and there was also Melanie Shatner and Kevin Spiritus who were who were kind of new to the ensemble. They were great as well.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I like that
1: Kevin Spiritus uh in, in his in his role like he played it straight in a great way that that I think other actors might not have been as inclined to do coming on to sort of a vampire movie.
0: Yeah, for that me was he like was a like a good choice. He was like the straight all-American guy, you know, who would be kind of the the counter to to Janhaj Duke, who's playing Captain, Lieutenant Marin, the the Romanian police, yeah, who, uh, who's a bit of a scene a stealer. Good, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah,
0: he is, man. He's a great, he's a wonderful yeah. actor and a really good guy to have on the set too.
1: Yeah, he was fantastic. Um, there's a weird thing on IMDb where it says that the the, the second and third one were originally supposed to be set in China. Do you know anything about that? Is there any truth to that?
0: No, no there was maybe uh was going to be set in uh, san francisco uh at one point very early on in charlie's brain but um but once we discovered romania and and all that that had to offer and plus after subspecies, Charlie realized what he had in romania i mean sub the first subspecies cost probably a hundred and fifty two hundred thousand dollars it was incredibly right. Uh, economical. So he, uh, we invited Vlad and Juana to come to the States, and he made a deal to buy some property with them and, and establish Castel Film Studios there that uh, he ended up losing, but uh, is still an ongoing uh, major film producer in Romania.
1: And I loved the addition of the Pamela Gordon mummy character. She's that's a really fun character. I love that the 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 mummy's name is mummy. I love that it doesn't have like some <laughs> witch name or something. Just mummy. Like hearing Radu, you know, like my mummy. Like just these scenes where he's calling her mummy. It's so much. It's such a fun thing. Like what made you guys to be like, let's just call her mummy. Like uh, it's such a neat what? touch.
0: I just thought it, to to think of Radu being so kind of. Uh, desperate for love, that he that he still calls his mother Mummy, uh, and then that his yeah. m- m- mom <laughs> his mom is a mummy. In fact, it just seemed like a interesting play on words to me, and and the idea that that his mother is a mummy who's like a sorceress is was really it was cool. I thought you know,
1: it's it's sort of irresistible. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even talk about the fact that you that in the first film um uh wow what's his face from from the tall man from phantasm
0: oh yeah uh um uh, angus uh, grim angus, angus grim came in
1: to play the the king
0: yeah, yeah. angus grim uh basically charlie you know kind of uh put that deal together angus grim flew to romania for like two days of shooting uh his plane for some reason ended up like halfway across the country, landed halfway across the country. So then they had to rush him to Bucharest. I met him. Uh, he was, you know, f- from the Phantasm films, I expected him to be a very threatening, scary presence, when in reality, he was a very mild, very sweet man. So I was like, oh, fuck, how are we <laughs> going to make this guy like a vampire? And then, And his hair was so short and... He had no kind of sense of like antiquity to him. So then we started piling wigs on his head and, then you know, it was like, Oh shit, man, we got two days to come up with a solution to this. And (laughs) and so that's kind of where we ended up trying to, trying to give him some sense of antiquity. Uh, So it's like a, not the greatest solution, but, you know, Angus Grimm was Angus Grimm. Man, it was cool to have him in the film. Well, and
1: it's great to have him in there. He's he's such a, he's sort of genre royalty, right? I mean, it's yeah, fun yeah, to have yeah. him in the picture. Um, it, and it's, there's another character that was introduced in the third one that was sort of a character. I think some fans had a tough time with the, the Bob character. Ah. How did that character sort of come into the equation?
0: Well, because... uh Mel Thompson works for the U S embassy. He's got a friend who who's like a, like a CIA guy or a, you know, Marine kind of guard for the embassy. Uh, It felt to me like Mel was not able to kind of like uh, launch an assault on the castle. Uh, So I thought it'd be kind of funny to bring in this kind of out of control gun nut uh, character. Uh, what are the fans? Why don't they like him? Because he just seems like out of the world of subspecies or what?
1: Yeah, like I think just looking at like comments, yeah, looking at like through comments and stuff, there's just fans who, who I think uh, from, from from what I was reading sort of felt like tonally he sort of comes in and he's this very different tone than than the the, the, the rest of the picture, which seems sort of odd to me because I feel like Marin is sort of a, a comic relief character, but yeah, it was just one of the things where, where uh, you know, going through fan comments and stuff there was like a, a a few comments about you know where did this bob character come from and what was you know what was the point of that character and it, it's funny how people i guess when they watch the movie have different ideas of what characters they think fit into the lore and the, you know the world uh, that yeah. you're creating there
0: yeah i mean it, it felt to me like that that they needed some help and and so bob became kind of the the, the means of getting into the castle um yeah, uh, that that's funny. Yeah, I mean, I I can I can dig that. It's like, wait a minute, what? Now there's all these guns, and you know, here's a guy with all <laughs> right, this uh, yeah. like firepower. Uh, but yeah, that I mean, you know, sometimes you make a misstep. I, I guess I could have thought thought about it longer and figured out another way for them to get in, but that was it.
1: I love the way that they they that that. Radu and the mummy when they do that teleporting and they start just ranting and raving nonsense, you know, and then they teleport away. That's such a great bit of business. Was that an honors thing?
0: Yeah. I said, honest, we need like, well, they
1: teleport. (laughs) I said,
0: honest, we need a magic spell. And, uh, in a foreign language, what can you come up with something? And I guess there's like an old kind of, uh, Greenlandish, uh, uh, saying or something and my father's dead or 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 use Greenlandish uh tongue to say my father's dead my mother's insane and something 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 and, and he just he did it the first time and it just sounded so horrifying and cool you know that we just went with it
1: <laughs> yeah it's really crazy there's this great bit too that he does where I think it's the Rebecca character points a gun at him and Radu kind of does this sort of eye roll uh, at the Gumbi yeah, point yeah. his face. I was like, that's such a great, like, such a great just, you know, Honest, like, never missed, you know, he never misses a beat with that character for a chance to sort of, you know, it, there's there's a side to to Radu where he's kind of this, like, I don't know, he almost feels like this sort of punk vampire. Like, he's not just, you know, gothic. Like, there's a humor to him, and, and on top of this, pathos and the sadness and there's so much going on with the character i think that's really why he's had a, a long a lot of longevity as a villain
0: yeah he honest uh, could find those little moments you know and and surprise you i love it when an actor kind of like does something that's not doesn't jump out too far from the scene itself but is such a perfect little moment of interior uh, life for him and honest and is incredible at finding those moments and also understanding Kind of that that humor kind of goes hand in hand with the uh, with horror, you know, and and so there needs to be kind of like this slight cracking of the of the seriousness of the tone every once in a while,
1: right? And then he also says, you know, there's a scene right towards the end of so Species Three between Denise stuff and Honest where they're. Where he's sort of—it's this like this just this sad, tragic scene where you you almost feel like she sort of feels for him in that scene. She knows what she has to do. She knows he has to be stopped. But there is a sense that Michelle has almost empathy for Radu at that point. I thought that was really kind of great to 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 include that in these characters that they that they had that connection.
0: That like you're talking about the scene on the castle ramparts where where she says, "What's it take to kill a vampire?" and she. She says she's gonna hate him forever, and he tells her he loves her forever. Yes, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that that's scene right. was. Yeah. yeah, that you yeah. know you write a scene like that, and you don't maybe know quite how it's gonna play, but it felt like right. you know she needs to be contemplating her own death because she wants to somehow be set free from this, you know, and and it and it was obvious that in through subspecies three that his kind of. Uh, Obsession with her had turned into something kind of like a perverse love. So, yeah, that was like one of those moments where the actors just bring so much to the written word that you're just in awe. And every time Um, it's like, oh, we we got to shoot this quick. We're losing light. Blah blah blah. Quick. Blah blah blah. You know. And so add that the 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 sense that you know every day is like you're running out of time, and yet still they have the wherewithal to kind of focus in on a scene like that. It was really great.
1: Yeah, they had real chemistry, Denise and Honest. And yeah, it's yeah. you know, it was it was funny watching at the end of the movie because I am going back and revisiting the the, the trilogy uh, before talking to you today. It, it, Radu has these extremely inventive demise is at the end of each of the films. They they and they seem to sort of one up One another and by the third one he has this just i mean every he gets stabbed in the cheek he gets in all these weird places where we don't usually see people like in the forehead i was like i don't think i've ever seen a character get stabbed here and here which i thought was great because if that the one in the cheek is sort of horrible you're like oh my god like right in the bone of his face yeah yeah and then he falls on the yeah (laughs) and then he falls on the tree and i was like i remember thinking like how the hell is he going to survive this one? Did you think at the end of the third one, we're done here? Like that's the Radu?
0: Pretty much thought that was the end. It didn't realize that we were going to make a fourth one. And it was uh, quite a few years before we had the money to make the fourth one. Um, and, and that we didn't have as much money to make the fourth one as we had to make uh, the first three. So it suffered in some ways. And, um, but yeah, the, trying to figure out the way to the way out of his death was always kind of the trick of starting the next screenplay.
1: Yeah, and, and then between three and four, you did Vampire Journals in ninety seven, and it's sort of you know things that sort of changed at Full Moon because Paramount was out now and budgets had gone down at, by that point. I can't remember who who Charlie had uh, distributing his films at that point, but I think um, I think uh, but here, you I, know I, oh go ahead. I was going to say, it was like, you know, Vampire Journals was interesting because it was like, you know, I, you can kind of see that, that, that maybe the budget had gone down and maybe you had less to work with, Uh, but you know, and, and in that one, you went sort of full on Gothic, like, you know, the, 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 the the subspecies one through three had gothic elements but there was you know radu had some humor to him and there was a gore component that was more present and then you know but but vampire Journals was much more sort of a straight ahead sort of gothic vampire picture
0: you know uh vampire journals actually uh i think was still part of the paramount regime because we were in the was building it? yeah yeah it was before paramount kind of uh pulled out of their support but yeah charlie uh kind of called me into his office one day and said, I got this idea. I want to do a story about kind of um, more beautiful city vampires uh, and uh, vampires that have a gambling casino. Cause Charlie's a big uh, right. gambler. Um, and, and so the idea kind of, I, I went, well, let me think about that. And uh, then it, suddenly it kind of appealed to me, the idea of doing this uh, because, because for me, the, the, idea of a underground network below the city and in this Mm -hmm. underground network there's like various strata from history kind of uh that that the vampires it's like an underground city that idea really kind of is in my imagination constantly so so i said okay yeah let's do that we'll do that and and um with vampire journals the trick was okay so i wrote the script uh, the trick was really to find the character of Ash, uh, an actor who could play Ash, who has like a sense of antiquity, but can also be part of the modern world. And right. we ca- we like ha- held a lot of casting sessions in LA and didn't find anybody. Luckily, went to uh, uh, I went to London um, to work with the casting director uh, Jill Titchmarsh, who I'd worked with on. Uh, Dragon World uh and some of the kids' movies that I did previous. Uh, and she brought in Jonathan Morris, who was like a kind of a musical comedy guy. Um, but he had something about him that was that had the great presence sense yeah. of yeah, of age, of age and wisdom. And uh so, so I was like so happy to cast him. And then we went uh went on to Bucharest and oh and, and um uh Kristen who played uh who played the the piano player uh was mm-hmm. uh really she actually was the assistant to the casting director who was like reading the offlines for the auditions that we were holding for all the characters. And in the end, I just kind of looked at her and went, wow, you you should play this part, you know, and she was a pianist and, and it all worked out for her. Um, and then, um, Oh, who's the actor who plays, um, the young vampire, uh, David Gunn. Yeah. David Gunn. Uh, and David Gunn came in and auditioned for, uh, the part of Zachary and he had like a kind of brooding, young actorish quality that that really appealed to me and and so we had our cast we had uh what's what's uh kristen Ker, chris kirsten's name
1: uh i'm not not sure how it's pronounced. it's spelled c e r r e
0: and is it Sarai. Kristen or kirsten 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 yeah okay so yeah. Uh, we had, uh we had david gunn uh now with this kind of brooding quality and uh Kirsten serreray who was like the basically was reading the, the off-camera parts for the auditions for all the other actors, uh, but was putting so much into her readings that eventually we'd, we had not landed on the right character uh, or the right actress for her. So I just kind of looked at her and said, well, why don't you come and play that role? And so, so I had yeah. the American actors. We had Jonathan Morris, uh, went to, to Bucharest, and started scouting locations and, and, you know, it's not Gothic and, and castley and all of that, but it's, but we had a really great uh, gambling casino that we could use in a limited number of hours every day. We had in Bucharest, there are any millions of underground tunnels and former kind of basements and where they were printing underground newspapers and old, Buildings with crumbled down staircases and uh so so the the sense of the various strata of the underground city were all there in a variety of locations that if you put them together, it would work. Um we had uh so then casting Elinka Goya, who plays uh the the kind of vampire protege of Ash. Uh mm-hmm. She was amazing. She had a presence, and a, I said to her, she's sort of like a princess in a tower and and always wanting to see what's outside. And somehow she captured the haunted quality of that character. We uh, This movie was uh, Adolfo Bartoli was the director of photography. And uh, when we were in pre-production in Bucharest, Charlie ran out of money for a period of time, and we didn't have the money to start shooting. But he kept me and Adolfo there in Bucharest, and so we kept working with the production designer Vali uh, Kalinescu, who was brilliant, and uh, and going to the to the library and to bookstores and looking at art books and talking about lighting and classical paintings and uh, kept plussing and plussing and plussing through like a period of four or five weeks that we were stuck there and talking about how the shots were going to be and how the light should be. And so in a way, that movie ended up being, looking like one of the most beautiful of all my movies, I think, you know, from a standpoint of light and locations and textures of the production design. So in a way, the fact that we ran out of money kind of gave us the pre-production time that you should have on a movie and um, added a lot to the film.
1: And then it's also sort of set in the subspecies universe, kind of the Marvel thing of, you know, you have these (laughs) characters and there's, you know, way before they were doing it. um, Because Radu gets mentioned. We don't see him, but he's talked about in vampire journals.
0: Yeah, I wanted to somehow tie that in just in case we were going to ever have to, like, bring the two worlds together. Cross them over. Yeah. And the idea that, that... Radu is is so ancient that he's got all these spawn and and basically the, the idea of Zachary the vampire hunter in that story is is you know again kind of the the generations of vampires that spawn you so it seemed right to me that that uh Ash was a, a protege of of Radu.
1: It's interesting on IMDB when you look up subspecies four it's either called Bloodstorm or subspecies The Awakening and I don't
0: you know what? It Unlike was called when- It was called Bloodstorm. The subspecies four is is supposed to be Bloodstorm. Uh The Awakening maybe came from a f- uh like an international release. You know, you sort of right. don't quite know what happens with the with these films once they go international. But yeah, it was supposed to be Bloodstorm. It was
1: Which is uh, definitely cooler than The Awakening.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and and <laughs> blood was supposed to be part of every, you know, the the, the subtitle of every of the subspecies right. movies. Um, it was a movie that I did because you know the opportunity to go back and continue that story was great. The budget was uh, kind of almost too a limited, lot less. yeah, and yeah. so we couldn't yeah. travel outside of Bucharest. So we had to find the locations within the city itself. Uh, the bloodstone production designer um uh uh, radu Korcheva, who had done two and three and and was incredible said oh we can we can design the bloodstone by computer now 3d printing and so the bloodstone doesn't even look like the antiquity uh object that that it should look like Uh, a lot of things went wrong in that film
1: uh and radu's makeup is is quite a bit different kind of chalky and blockier
0: and yeah, the makeup is not as good. He looks uglier. The lighting is harsher. It, you know, everything about it is not quite right. I mean, I don't I don't disown the film because there are some things that I like about it. Um but yeah. Yeah, Anders yeah. is
1: great as always. It's fun to see Radu and 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 uh, to see Denise Steph do their thing, but but yeah, it, you can you can tell that you were you had a lot more limitations on that on that particular film. Yeah, yeah. Puppet Master versus demonic toys. So you did a couple films, you did a couple films before that for Charlie Ragdoll, Urban Evil, Doctor Bones, and they were all kind of under like this distribution arm Charlie was trying to do. That was like sort of what like an urban uh, distribution arm of Full Moon.
0: Yeah, there was a point uh, where Charlie had cast Mel Johnson Jr. in a film, and Mel was the cabbie in uh, in um,
1: Hideous. I think.
0: Yeah, but he was also the cabbie in uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Total Recall, a really great character. Uh, And so I think he talked Charlie into the idea of making a bunch of uh, kind of uh, urban uh, horror films uh, with black uh, casts. And it was a great idea because uh, there's like so many black actors who are really good who were not getting the roles back then. Now there's like, lot of opportunity, but back then there was less right. opportunity. Um and uh so for some reason Charlie was like, okay, we're gonna do it, but for some reason then he cast me, put me in as director. uh, <laughs> just maybe because he needed something that he could trust was going to pull off this idea, right. you know. Um and Mel and I got along really well and and so we started casting uh ragdoll and Man, it was amazing the actors and that you could get for these movies. You know, so it was really fun to do. It was like a crazy two short schedule, uh, and and so the film is flawed in in many ways. But it also, I think, has some you know just great actors. James Black uh, playing kind of the the gay gangster. Uh, it, it's amazing yeah, you know it's great yeah yeah uh yeah yeah and so then mel and i and did you got one- to do
1: a, your own your your own you got to do your own full moon killer doll movie you know yeah and it's like yeah, a rite of yeah. passage of full moon a killer
0: <laughs> <laughs> i guess so you know even though uh, like i say i hate <laughs> those fucking little dolls and and you know sort of like i like to work with <laughs> i like to work with actors and and with human beings and uh and once all of that fun is done and then you're like, oh, shit, we got three more hours of puppet stabbing to shoot, you know, uh, not <laughs> not my favorite thing to do. Um, but but I like <laughs> I, I enjoyed doing that film. It had music. It had uh, it had horror in it. It had like a lot of cam work that was really fun. Um, and uh, Mac Alberg was the director of photography. So he kind of brought that magical Mac Alberg look to it. Uh, and then we did, right. uh, uh, then we did Doctor Bones, and the schedule was even tighter. And I was like, "Well, okay, I'll do this just to see if I can do a movie in nine days." You know, and and it proved yeah. to me that I can't do a movie in nine days that I'm happy with. You know. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, yeah. Well, there just isn't time in nine days to get you know the coverage you want and the setups, and you know you have to limit your takes, and it's it's that's very restrictive. I mean, I know now, like charlie's doing movies for five days i'm like oh my gosh like how do
0: you yeah you don't make a good movie in five days yeah yeah and no and and a lot of these movies he's making in five or six days are like you know 60 minutes not not feature length but but yeah that that movie proved to me that i'm not happy making a movie in nine days i can't because i you know i still sort of have that film school mentality of film is an yeah. art and camera moves are important and composition is important and taking the time with the actors to make sure you get a good take is important and all those things you have to kind of put aside in a way to sh- to finish a film on schedule in nine minutes. i mean
1: on a schedule like that you're sort of stuck almost to like procedural television coverage you know over over two shot like just you know basic basic coverage
0: yeah 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 so so that movie, you know, even as 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 fun as it is to work with uh, these all black casts, and they were, again, really really good actors. And uh, I mean, and there were some scenes that I really enjoyed uh, shooting in that, like in the, the kind of abandoned nightclub of the of the boss bad guy, you know, and that scenes like that were fun, you know, and, and it's always fun to put a camera in front of people and, and try to make a movie. So, so it wasn't like a miserable experience, but it was like, uh, it really pushed the limits. Not your favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, puppet master versus demonic toys is a funny thing to me because it, you've got two of Charlie's sort of flagship franchises, puppet master and demonic toys, both well-loved, particularly puppet master in kind of chart and that and Charlie's very protective of puppet master, rightfully so. And then you and see and Courtney Joyner get brought on to make it, but it ends up not being a full moon movie, and Charlie doesn't end up being involved. How did that come to pass, that it, that it happened that way?
0: Charlie had sold a Sci-Fi Channel the idea of doing a Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys, and he had probably gotten paid for the rights to it, but he never made the film. He had the script by uh, Courtney Joyner, um, and. I guess he didn't have the money to make the film. So he sold the rights to that, to make that film, to, uh, to the producer.
1: Uh, was it Peter Locke or someone like that?
0: Well, Peter Locke and, uh, Donald Kushner had kind of taken over the, a lot of the distribution of some of Charlie's movies that he, that he kind of defaulted on. Um, right. no, it was, uh. Here it says uh,
1: Kirk Edward Hansen and Michael Mahoney.
0: Uh, puppet master. Who's the executive producer?
1: Oh my gosh, there was like fourteen producers on that movie. Um, yeah,
0: the top one is uh, Jeff, Jeff. Jeff Franklin. Yeah, Jeff Franklin. Okay, so Charlie had sold yeah. the rights. Charlie had sold the the rights to make that film for Sci Fi Channel to uh, Jeff Franklin, who was a producer of notorious low budget uh, TV series. So I said, okay, I'd like to rewrite the script of Courtney's because I I felt like it needed some jazzing up or something or a little touch of me or something. I don't know what. Um and I kind of I think I pissed off a lot of Puppet Master fans by kind of (laughs) emphasizing kind of the humorous aspects of the of the toy company. Um and Jeff Franklin fucked it up completely by casting Corey Feldman and then by throwing the one who's
1: so who's so weird in the movie. Feldman just seems like it's like he's on a different planet in the film. It's like,
0: yeah, yeah, he was, he was strange. And, and then Jeff Franklin, like totally threw a whammy into it by casting, uh, uh, Sylvia Suvadova to play the cop. And Sylvia Suvadova is a wonderful person and a really good actor, but she's from, uh, Czech Republic and has uh, an accent and is not like a LAPD police officer. By any means um, <laughs> right I- if I had known <laughs> yeah. I- in enough time that that she was the character, I would have rewritten it and she would have been a spy from Eastern Europe, and everything would she would have not seemed like such a weird addition to the movie um we had to yeah. re voice her and, and she's a incredibly good actress, and I love her and and so i'm I'm not dissing her in any way, but she was badly miscast in this film, as was that, uh Corey part, Feldman yeah, yeah and
1: Vanessa Angel's pretty, her performance is kind of fun. She kind of feels totally like she kind of found the right vibe.
0: Yeah, she got it, and she, and, and, and I, you know, I said, uh, she should just be like a very, like a little Shirley Temple girl who never grew up, you know? Uh, and and she got it, and she was great. Uh, but Jeff Franklin and his crew, we were shooting in Bulgaria, and uh, he had shot two movies before, uh, uh, puppet master versus demonic toys and probably spent all the money on those two movies. By the time it came to puppet master versus demonic toys, I was fighting for every inch I could get a budget to, for the sets and all of that. And right. I found Bulgaria to be not, uh, it wasn't like shooting in Romania where you've got all these artisans right. that are incredible at their jobs. Uh, it was a much more uh, low budget and tawdry sort of affair the guys who were, who did the, the toys were not that, maybe they didn't have the money. They do. They, but the, they were They're very like, yeah, they don't move well. Yeah. The whole thing was just fucked up, you know? Yeah. The, uh, so, <laughs> so basically that film was like me trying to pull teeth with a director of photography who didn't like me one bit and I didn't like him one bit. So working with him oh boy. was a pain in the ass working with Corey was like, sometimes it was okay, and sometimes it was like, Corey, don't do that voice. You know, that's going to kill the movie, you know, and just like, yeah. so trying to, trying to keep all of these things together while shooting in a very low-budget, tall, right. sort of a settings when I'm used to expansive locations. I'm not apologizing for the film because I made it, and I can't, you know, I can't deny it, but it was a very complex and not very happy experience.
1: I know that the the Puppet Master fans have sort of decided it's not part of the Puppet Master world. They they sort of it's the outlier. They kind of they say it's not canon.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, that, but, you,
1: but you weren't even a, you weren't you weren't even a fan of the Puppet Master films yourself, anyway. Really, were you?
0: No, I wasn't really. I don't like puppet movies very much, and and you know even even the first one, uh, Puppet Master, which kind of set it all going and was made by David Schmoller, who's actually a decent filmmaker, was you know. Just didn't I didn't respect those movies all that much. I haven't seen actually the World War II set one that Dave Dakota did, which I hear is good. That's um, the one everyone loves. Yeah. That's yeah, the one yeah. everyone loves. Yeah. So you know, I made uh, I, I shouldn't have stepped into that, but I, I I kinda was like at that point I hadn't directed a film in quite some time and was kind of desperate to work again yeah. and and the offer came at a moment, it caught me And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it, you know? And I should have said no, but sometimes you don't, you know?
2: Yeah. So
1: then you took, like, a little break from horror for a while, and then comes just last year, Don't Let Her In. Um, The synopsis on IMDb is, An attractive young couple rents out a room in their spacious loft to an eccentric, beautiful female artist. They soon live to regret it. Slowly but surely, their seductive new tenant invades their minds their beds, and the very fabric of their lives. So it's sort of a succubus kind of story that you, were, you wanted to go for here, huh?
0: Yeah, basically, uh, you know, the new, this new generation of, what, of the movies Charlie was making, he proposed to me, we're going to shoot them to be in two parts because now streaming, everybody loves TV series. Uh, but, you know, TV series of two parts is not a TV series, really. So it was <laughs> yeah. a so, uh, bit of a miscalculation. And, and two parts that only have to be 30 minutes each. So it can't even, when you put them together, add up to a full feature. But for me, uh, the idea of, okay, six day, you know, he he proposed what five days. And I said, Oh, I'll do it. If you give me six days, you know, Yeah. because by this time I had for 10, 15 years or something, I'd been doing kind of behind the scenes documentaries for the Disney company about, you know, like, Walt Disney's, uh, the artists that worked for him, the studio back in the 30s, blah, blah, blah. Like right. a million little bits and pieces of documentaries. And, and it was fun and I learned a lot doing them, but I was ready to direct again. Uh, and we were talking about subspecies number five. We've been talking about it for years, but uh, but COVID kind of put it on the back burner again for another right. bit of time. But Charlie said, hey, you want to do one of these movies? Uh, propose me some ideas. So, I proposed him an idea of like the roommate from hell that really is from hell, and he said, "Okay, yeah, I like that idea so so uh basically, I wanted to do kind of a demonic possession succubus story. I knew for six days it had to be like one location one location yeah, it had to be a limited number of cast members just because for me, then I could concentrate more on the performances and on the the kind of style of the film um and so then we set out looking for locations. I wanted it to be an old loft I, in my mind, I remember the days of the of the l a arts district when it was really seedy, and there was like loft spaces everywhere and uh, so I went down and started looking for lofts and you know it's like everything is now you know just built up, and the old places are torn down. yeah, but I found this one loft uh it, on, I can't even remember the street now. But this one loft that that is still there. It's an old warehouse building. It looks like it looked back in the 1940s because the guy that owns it, the
1: Stackman Building, right? Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. Or Starkman is it, Starkman or Stackman? And I it's, think
1: it's Stackman, but yeah, one or the
0: other. And it's like uh the guy just keeps it as it was and uses it, uh, rents it out as a filming location. Um, so once we found that location. And then uh, we started casting and ended up uh, with an amazing cast of young actors that, uh, that uh, kind of, I wanted a real musician to play the part of the, the musician boyfriend. Um, and, oh, Cole Pendery uh, Cole Pendry came in and, and and read for that part. Well, no, didn't come in and read now everything pandemic style is done over zoom. You know,
1: did you shoot it during COVID? It was shot during the whole, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Shot during COVID right after the vaccines became available. Um, right. Cole Pendry, uh, read for the part and, and I said, I want a real musician for this part. So, so the casting director is really concentrated on that. Cole was great. He had everything that I kind of wanted in that role. Uh, Lauren doctor uh, read for the part of Serena. And she too had like the, she's like really spectacular looking, but also has like a sense of uh, age to her like old soul. Um, and so she was great. And then Kelly Curran, uh, read for the part of Amber, and she was so natural and so kind of innocent, perky that her against Lauren Doctor seemed like the, the perfect thing to do. So, we had the three cast members, and um, and Charlie wanted to use his uh, you know, favorite fast cinematographer, Howard uh, Wexler. And I was sort of a little suspicious of Howard Wexler at first, but uh ended up liking him a lot and uh after working with Adolfo Bartoli who could take 3 hours to light a set and leaving you like 2 hours to shoot, you know, 3 pages or 4 pages of material unlike Adolfo Howard could light a set so fast and and turn around and do your close-ups everything uh so quickly that it sort of freed me up to uh to really get a lot of coverage and basically we shot with two cameras and camera on a jib arm most of the time. And um, so for me, it was like an exercise in trying to make a film in a short amount of time in a very compact way. I don't know if you like the film or not, but I I feel like it's, it's pretty effective. It's a little bit of a Rosemary's baby kind of uh, wannabe.
1: I think it's definitely one of the stronger efforts, you know, in in the, in the sort of full moon era of like these, you know, no time, no money yeah, because I remember I I read that you I read that you said you were hoping to kind of return to sort of the full moon roots with the film, and and I think and I think you did that.
0: Yeah, I wanted to make a a a serious straight ahead movie that had like decent performances, believable performances, a location that that has some magic to it, and I think that that building definitely has some magic to it, and uh, the production designer uh, Dave Lowe, kind of really you know, with no money kind of brought a lot of production value to it. And uh, Howard really did well by me, you know, to like the thing. And it's always a struggle, you know, to, you got like some night scenes in this place and some day scenes, and we don't have the money to, to black out windows. And so you have to always, you're kind of trying to figure out how to schedule a day so that you're shooting the shooting the day scenes during the day. And then somehow, you know, have time still to do the night scene, so it was a it was a a real challenge, but uh, it was it was fun to do, you know, fun to get back in the seat again and and make a movie.
1: And so, wh- what's next, Ted? You have, a, are you doing another subspecies anytime soon? Will we be revisiting the world of Radu?
0: Yeah, right now uh, we've got our team of uh, production guys who are uh, working with us to to help us make a movie outside of the country. Uh, we're working uh, with a Serbian production company. Romania is now too expensive for us. And uh, Moldova is cheap, but a little too close to the conflict now. Um, So Serbia, we're going to try to shoot it in Serbia. Uh, We're kind of working out kind of how to get all the locations that that I'm hoping to get uh, for the budget that Charlie's hoping to get. And uh, we're planning to shoot it probably in June of this year. Honus is on board, Denise is on board, Kevin Spiritus is on board, and um we're going to go do it.
1: Well, I can't wait to see it.
0: Me too. Me too.
1: And I think a lot I think a lot of fans are going to be excited to to have the the gang back. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll anxiously await that. Thank you so much uh Ted for for coming on the show and and for chatting with me about uh about your films. I really appreciate it. It's been great.
0: Sure thing, Kevin. It's really been fun. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You've been listening to Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and in incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrion. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you, and the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Be sure to post, comment, share, and like, but don't forget, good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. And the best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.